Yo guys, what's going on? Uh, so I won't be posting up a new episode of Uncommuted until Monday, but um, I do have an episode of LGBTR to share with you today. Now this one is a bit of a long one, but it's very deep. Um, and I believe, you know, I believe that it's a story that's worth sticking through to the end to listening to. Uh, this is Luane Childry. Uh, who uh, pretty much wrote a memoir about his life. And he kind of goes through his whole story here, which is in some ways very tragic, but uh, inspiring as well. Um, So you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Just stick with me after the break and uh, you'll see, you'll you'll get some feelings. (laughs) It's very deep. It's a long one, but it's worth it. So uh, thanks for listening. Hey everybody, my name is Jared King, uh, and you're watching The Read. Uh, I have a I have a very special guest tonight. I'm very excited to have him here. Um, I read his book, and it was just uh, it was really good. So let's get started. Uh, So how does a troubled black gay youth from the Deep South grow up to become one of the most respected news journalists in the country? This is the question that opens today's guest's book, Peeling Back the Layers, a story of trauma, grace, and triumph. Prepare to go on a journey from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs and learn something along the way. Here's Luane Children. Hey, Luane, how's it going? Great and getting better. Awesome, awesome. All right, so why don't we just jump into the questions. Um, at the beginning of your book, you write, God placed it in my spirit years ago to tell the story of how he restored this broken vessel, making me whole again. Uh, can you describe the moment when you first knew that you had to tell this story? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, shortly after I had developed uh, a relationship with God, and uh, I was at home one day, and he and I would have conversation like you and I are having right now. And I was standing in front of the uh, kitchen stove, uh, frying some chicken in one of those black cast iron skillets. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's a Southern thing. <laughs> but I'm standing there in front of the, the, the stove frying this chicken, and I heard this voice, this little voice. I call it the little voice. And I asked him, what is my purpose in life? You know, that's the question that I pose. I say, Lord, what is my purpose in life? And I heard this little voice say, I want you to speak my word. And I said, I'll speak your word. And I knew instantly that it didn't mean preaching to a congregation from the pulpit or anything like that. But from that moment, I was allowed to go back to school to pursue my childhood dream of becoming a news reporter. Went to school, everything that I touched, God blessed it. Ended up with a great job uh, for public broadcasting. Had the opportunity to tell literally thousands of stories of other people. And the day eventually came that I knew it was time for me to share my own story, but it started with that question, what is my purpose? And the answer was, I want you to speak my word. That's very, that's very um, interesting. You know, I think I've had kind of a similar um, experience as far as, you know, coming to the realization that I had to write the book that I wrote. Um, because it was just always kind of in the back of my head. And I, you know, as much as I tried to avoid it, it was always there. So um, I think I can kind of get with you on that, on that same uh, level somewhat. <laughs> um, so at a very early age, you've experienced some tremendous trauma. Uh, you watched your cousin die in a fire. You were sexually abused by your father. And you witnessed your mother being physically abused. How did this early trauma shape your behavior growing up? Right. It was my father, it was my stepfather and his brother that sexually uh, abused me. Um, I think for me, it all, the the trauma started uh, with the fire when I was just four years old. So 
by the time I became a teen, I had probably experienced more trauma than the average adult will experience in a lifetime. Like you said, I witnessed my two-year-old cousin die in a house fire that he and I were playing in. Uh, we had this infatuation with the, the fire in this potbelly stove at my grandfather's house. My grandfather went to, uh, he was keeping us that day, and uh, he became winded and went and sat in his reclining chair and went to sleep. Well, while he's asleep, we decided that we wanted to make these tiki lanterns like we'd seen on TV. And so we took clothes hangers and sticks and little rags, uh, tied little rags to them, and we started poking around in this, this cold stove. And um, eventually we had these little torches and we started running around the house playing with them and pointing pointing them high in the air like you know like like we'd seen in the in the Tarzan movies and so i can remember the fire falling off of one of our torches and it falls onto the tattered rug in one of the bedrooms and we're trying to put the water out with a little the fire out with little glasses of water well you know the more we tried, the, the the fire just started to roar and roar and roar. And I can remember that it became so hot in there and I was holding on to my cousin because what he wanted to do was run into the room where the fire was really enraged and hide under the bed. And I'm trying to pull him out and pull him back and stop him from going. And he slips from my hand. And I watch him in that moment perish in the fire. Uh, luckily for me, there was a guy that was passing by who saw the smoke billowing from the rooftop, burst through the door. He was able to save me, but he couldn't save my cousin. In the meantime, my grandfather was trying to get to us too, but he couldn't because of all the smoke and the fire. So he ended up jumping from the third story uh, window. And uh, so that was kind of like the beginning of trauma. And I say unaddressed childhood trauma. And so from that point, just uh, within the same year, I went to stay with my mom and her husband. And that was during the time when I was sexually abused by him and his brother. Uh, shortly after that, um, they got a divorce, divorce but before the divorce, um, it was a very volatile relationship. And so I was, I was forced to watch my mom being beaten by the same guy. And, uh, and so with all of that unaddressed childhood trauma going on, I started to kind of feel this low grade of depression that I didn't know what it was at that time. But that was a pattern that was would manifest itself throughout the rest of my, my young life, you know. Uh, I didn't know what had happened to me as far as the molestation. I always carried this guilt that it was my fault. And I never shared it with anyone until I became an adult. But when I saw Oprah Winfrey talking about what had happened to her, I was like, oh, wow, that's what happened to me. And so I started to try to deal with it in my own mind. But it took, it took some other things to get me to the point where I was actually ready to deal with it. So other than that, I had a pretty typical childhood. Uh, you know, um, I was an only child growing up. And when I became a preteen, I got a stepsister <laughs> uh, because my mother married again. Um, but, you know, I made good grades in school. Uh, I was always singled out to do different things in school. So teachers always noticed a certain gift in me. And uh, I was able to kind of mask my feelings. Um, but I did have one encounter with one teacher that told my mom that she called my mom in for a, a, a visit. And she told my mom that I was timid. <laughs> and, um, and I think what she recognized was that I was depressed, but I guess didn't know how to deal with you know, when I when I read that story about you and your cousin in the fire, I had to put the book down for a minute because I was just like, 
that was it was i mean it was it was so heart-wrenching to to read and even to listen to again here um but i mean i, I just i i first of all i do want to say thank you for just being so honest about uh your experiences because um that's some really hard stuff that you went through and um and also regarding um your depression uh that's one thing that it didn't necessarily pick up on when i when i did read your book um so i mean it's interesting because you said that you know you um kind of had some some underlying stuff going on but uh it never really kind of burrowed to the surface i guess well um, and, were you were you aware of it when you were when you were young or was it just kind of something that you look back on as i look back i realized that it was depression but also during that time, if, if you remember, I started acting out and I started trying to self-medicate with uh, food. You know, I was the kid okay. that my mom used to drag me from store to store trying to find that 18 Husky. <laughs> and if she was lucky enough, she would buy all the 18 Huskies that the store had, you know. And I remember her telling me, Wayne, baby, you got to lose some weight or we won't be able to find you anything. And so I was masking that pain and that hurt with food. Um, and also, I started hanging with the wrong crowd. I was hanging with this guy from the neighborhood who was into shoplifting, and he was trying to get me along with some other friends to join him on his escapades. Nobody took him up on it except me. <laughs> or if they did, they didn't get caught. And uh, I remember going to juvenile hall this morning we were in the in, we were in the store right and my goal was to and we used to like to have these little parties right in in the neighborhood when our parents were at work and so everybody would bring a little something to contribute to the party and so this particular day i was going to bring some what hershey's kisses or something so this guy and i go to the store early in the morning he teaches me before we even get to the store how to put the stuff in my pants and just walk on out of the store. Well, we get in there. I put the bag of Hershey's Kisses in my pants. I'm sweating because I'm like nervous. You know, this is not my thing, but I'm doing it anyway. And um, as I'm on my way out of the, the, the store, I can see my friend has been caught by the store manager and he's sitting there in the office. The store manager calls me over and uh, he has this talk with us and he tells me, young man, I don't know why you're tied up with him. I know your mom went like this. You've got to quit this. He, tell, he tells my friend, uh, you're nothing but trouble and now you're getting him in trouble. I'm going to have to call the cops. So I end up in juvenile hall my mom comes to pick me up has to leave her job she is walking into juvenile hall a guy that she went to school with is over this facility and so there i am you know embarrassing my mom right there and you know at that point i'm thinking i'm going to get a, the, the beat down of, of a lifetime <laughs> right. I remember at one point you were kind of deciding whether to even go back into your house because you well, just yeah, when we got to the house, you know, because you know, even leaving the juvenile detention center, I was like, oh my God, my mom's gonna kill me. She's gonna kill me. And uh, I sat on the porch like all day, you know, till dusk. And she finally came out and told me, she said, You can come in. She said, but tomorrow when we go to the city hall where they can seal your records or whatever, if they want to keep you, they just keep you. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's enough for me. And so I didn't, nobody had to worry about me going down that path anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you did have some other paths that you went down. Um, so, but, we, and we will get to that in a moment. <laughs> but, um, let's let's talk about this let's talk about your the relationship with your mother uh for a moment um you mentioned in the book that when you were 10 your mother left you alone in the house while going on a weekend trip with her boyfriend um this was a scary experience for you at that young age but um it's also the first time you mentioned uh writing as a skill of yours so how did that experience lead to that discovery oh wow you know uh 
that was kind of like the climax of her leaving me home alone because at that time she was dating a jazz musician okay and when she wasn't at the the club in Birmingham with him uh, they were traveling out of town to a gig here or a gig there and this particular weekend they were headed to Arkansas he had a gig playing for the governor of Arkansas at that time and so my mom had a habit of leaving me with her one of her two sisters and so they would always take me in when she would leave but they, it got to the point where they felt that she was leaving me at home too often now remember my mother was only 16 years older than me she had me when she was 16 years old and so she was leaving me with them on a regular basis and they decided you know that this is not going to work you know you have forsaken your family you've forsaken your church all of this to be with a guy that we barely even know and so they decided no he can't stay so my mama called up a, co a couple of her girlfriends and she couldn't get them but she was determined that she was going to arkansas that weekend. I remember her coming in singing love songs, you know, Isaac Hayes, Barry Wyatt, all those love songs, because she was really feeling this guy. And uh, she wanted to go. And she sat me down and she told me not to let anyone know that I was at home alone, not to turn on any extra lights. Uh, and so I'm in this house when she leaves and I can hear the kids out in the, in the yard and they're playing hide and seek five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, you know, have you ever played that game before? Hide and seek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's, you know, a childhood game. And so I'm in the house listening to all of this going on around me. And then suddenly that sound stops and it's starting to get late and the TV goes off and I'm there alone and the fear starts to sink in and I start crying and find myself writing my thoughts down. And for me, it started writing little love songs to God or little prayers to God uh, in the form of, of a song. And I can still remember the very first song that I wrote and the lyrics went something like, if I had the wings of a dove, I'd fly away, way up in the sky. If I had the wings of a dove, I'd tell this old world goodbye. And when I listen to those lyrics now, even then I was crying out, you know, and I was trying to find a way to escape. Um, so that had a very profound effect on me because not only was I afraid then, but I was afraid for practically the rest of my young adult life because I didn't want to deal with abandonment. And so from that, I started making poor life choices when it comes to relationships. I was willing to just be with anyone just for the sake of being there so that I wouldn't have to be alone. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there is a moment in the book where you describe a phone call from your mother where she flat out asks you if you're gay. Uh, so what was that moment like for you? What did that feel like for you? And uh, what were some of the difficulties about coming out to your family? Yeah, uh, I, remember, I remember that moment and I have to laugh about it because, you know, usually it's the the child coming out, you know, how am I going to tell my mother? Right. My mother's like me. And so the setup is, you know, after college, I mean, after high school, and I, I finished high school in, in Memphis, went to high school three years in Birmingham, but I finished in Memphis because my, my mother had married the guy and they were living in Memphis then. I was still staying in Birmingham with family, but my senior year, I decided to go and stay with my mom, knowing I would be going away to college. Well, little did I know, my mom had found a love letter that goes to show you how long ago that was. She found a love letter from a guy that I, that I was dating that I had met on a school convention trip. And she didn't tell me at the time that she found it, that I had left a letter out on my bed in Memphis. So 
my she altered my plans from going to school in Tennessee to going to school in Alabama where she owned a home and so I could go and stay at her home um, and she could kind of monitor me or she wouldn't have to worry about me being with this guy because she had done her homework and it just so happens that the school I was going to, my mom and stepfather were friends with one of the deans there. And so they asked, well, what about this guy, this guy? Well, he's a pretty cool kid, but uh, he hangs with a pretty gay group of friends. And so my mom was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know. And so came to Birmingham, was living in Birmingham. Uh, and every time my mom would call, there was always company at the house. And there was always a guy. And so on Sunday, me and a friend of mine, we were there, we were listening to Jennifer Holiday, and I'm telling you, and we're acting a fool and cutting up and all that, and we're smoking weed. And um, we get to one of the parts of the song uh, that was my buddy's favorite part, and the phone rings, ring, 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 it's my mom. And I pick up the phone and I say hello, and then my mom's on the other end, and, uh, as I'm talking to my mom, uh, my buddy coughs from pulling on this joint. And my mom said, do you have company? I said, yes, it's my friend, Ray. And so she said, Ray, do I know him? I said, no, I said, but you've got to meet him once you come to town, you've got to meet him, he's a really cool guy. And she said, uh, let me ask you something. Are you gay? And I said, huh? And rhetorically i said am i gay and she said yes and um, i told her yes and she wanted to know how long ray and i had been lovers and i was like oh wait a minute wait a minute ray and i are not lovers he's just my friend well do you have a friend a lover i'm like yes i have a lover yeah the and guy you separated me from <laughs> Yeah, I, I was like, yes, I have a lover. I have a lover. I don't want you to meet him, you know. Um, and so when she came to town, she met him. And uh, I remember when they met, um, they had a very pleasant meeting. There was lots of laughter in the room. It was it was really a a, a very cordial uh, setting. But I remember at the end of the meeting, before she was getting ready to leave. She looked at him and she told him, she said, that is my baby. You fuck with him, you gotta fuck with me. And I may have, I may have not said that quite the way she said it, but that's what she said. And uh, from that point, I wanted her to know that although I was gay, I was the same son that she raised and the same son that she loved. And from that point, when he would come home, we would make it a point to go out and have a date with her, be it the movies, be it a concert, uh, whatever, and uh, or dinner. And uh, my mom came to love, accept it. All right, very cool. Um, so later on, so very, as a young adult, um, you experienced some abusive relationships. You were diagnosed with HIV and you eventually found yourself at a seriously low point with a crack cocaine addiction. Um, so with all of that and with all of the stuff that you went through as a, as a kid, how did you pull yourself out? Right. Um, you know, like I said, it goes back to that unaddressed childhood trauma. And so basically my book is written in three parts. It's uh, things that were done to me as a child, things that I did to myself as an adult, and then finally the redemption part of it all. And so in this phase, um, because I haven't learned how to deal with all of these situations and I've seen all of these things growing up, my mom being abused, uh, it got to the point where my world started caving in on me uh, because of all of these things that I had dealt with or not dealt with uh, in a professional setting. 
by that I mean through therapy or anything. I had never had any therapy, even from the fire, even from the molestation, even from watching my mom in those volatile situations. I had never shared that with anybody on a professional level that could help me to um, navigate through all of this stuff. Like I said, issues, I was willing to take anything. Um, and it finally got to the point where when I was diagnosed with HIV, the reason that I went to the clinic in the first place is because my very straight cousin was diagnosed with HIV, female cousin. And I thought, wow, if Cheryl can have HIV, would she actually tested positive for AIDS? at that time. Um, I knew if she could have it, she couldn't possibly have done half the things that I had done. So I knew I needed to go and get myself checked out. And I did that. And when I came back, the first person that I told was my mom. And my mom assured me that everything would be all right. The second person I told was my partner. And he assured me that everything was going to be all right. Little did I know that he was already positive, but in denial. And so we played this game up until about three months before he died, that he finally confessed that he was positive. And in the meantime, he's telling me, you know, because we got to the point where we wanted to end the relationship. I wanted to end the relationship because of the volatility in our relationship. And uh, he threatened me to the point he said, if I left him, he would tell my church, my job, all of my friends that I was HIV positive. And I'm like, wow. And so um, I've got that going on. My mom is sick. Uh, I'm taking care of her. She's had lung cancer, brain cancer. Now she's having a series of strokes. I'm in a new relationship now with a person young enough to be my child and he is taking me through the ringer and all of this stuff just starts coming down on me so i have a friend he and i have been friends since high school he um and i used to he and i used to get together at least once a week we used to have our our monday movie days and we sip wine and eat fish and watch movies you know, all day Monday, because we were both off on Mondays. Well, he started hanging with this group of friends that he really couldn't stand. And I couldn't understand why are you hanging with these people if you don't like them? And so he had been through his own stresses, his own trauma, because he was part of the Gulf War and he was dealing with his own issues. Well, I've got my own issues. And so my birthday is like the day before Halloween. And for my birthday, he would always throw a little birthday party for me. Well, this particular year, he decided not to because these new friends that he was hanging with, it was also their birthday. And so you got like three people in this group with the same birthday. So he invites me to their party instead of having a party for, for, for me. And so when we get there, the first thing that I see on the coffee table, beer cans, marijuana, liquor, and crack cocaine. And my first thought was to just dramatic, in dramatic fashion, just throw the table over and pull my buddy out of there. But because I'm Wayne and I can handle any situation, I was like, no, I'm just going to stay and see how far he's going to go with this. And so he told them right off the bat, he said, don't give LeWayne any of that. He'll smoke his weed, but don't give him any of any of that other stuff. And uh, I remember years ago uh, when I used to work in retail, I used to hang out with some of the guys in the maintenance department on Friday evenings. And we would, we would smoke weed and drink beer and talk plenty of stuff okay 
And so this one particular day, we are smoking and drinking and listening to great music because I'm a, I'm a music lover and they were too. And one of them turns to me and said, you know what you're smoking, right? And I said, yeah, some fire weed. And he was like, well, it's laced. I'm like, laced with what? And he was like, it's laced with crack cocaine. It, it made me so upset that I stopped hanging with them. So years later, I'm at my buddy's house now with his friends. I remembered that I had smoked that laced joint all those years ago. And by that time, I had learned the name was Primo. So I had Primo. So I told them, oh, no, I'll Primo. And so we had planned to be there for like an hour and then hit another party because it was also Magic City Classic Weekend in Birmingham, which is the in-state rivalry, Alabama State and Alabama A&M is one of the big, biggest classic games in the, in the country. And so there's always a tailgate party or this and that or something going on. So we were going to hit all of these different events. We ended up staying there all night getting high all night getting high and the next day i wanted to go back and do the same thing and it got to the point where i knew that i was out of control and so i told my mom that you know i had gotten addicted to crack cocaine and so from that point and this this was like maybe six months in i told my mom that i had gotten addicted to crack cocaine and i needed help and so I reached out through my employee assistance program and they sent me to see a, a psychologist. And I had a couple of sessions with him and it didn't help. And I was back out using again. And this went on for another three months. And it got to the point where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And uh, I was a functioning addict. I was still working at the bank. Uh, I was the addict where the other addicts would say, "Will you hold my stuff so I won't, so I won't uh, sell it for a hit?" Uh, and while I was in those rooms, they used to say, "Why are you here? Shouldn't you be teaching kids somewhere in school or something?" I guess they figured I didn't fit in. But it got to the point where I was doing this cocaine every day. I was in a bad relationship with this young guy who was young enough to be my son. My mom was having her series of health issues. I had my own issues with HIV and I just, I knew that I was going to die and I wanted to die. And that's the reason that I was doing the crack cocaine in the first place, because I thought if I would smoke enough crack cocaine, it would burst my heart and I would end up dead. And so that was my whole motive for it. Um, but it got to the point where what, that, that last night that I got high, I came home and I decided that, that that was it for me. And I started making phone calls, my mom and I, trying to see how I could get into a facility. And ironically, my buddy, the same one that took me to that house, told me, well, LeWayne, the only way that they're going to admit you to a, a hospital or a facility is that you tell them that you're going to hurt yourself or that you're going to hurt someone else. And the truth of the matter is I wanted to hurt myself. And so I had a, an emotional breakdown that Sunday morning uh, as one of my buddies, Chester, was coming to visit. And he's one of the people, because I kept my addict friends on one side, I kept my good friends on another side. I never mixed the two. And so Chester and I used to hang out. We used to go and do this and do this together. But I was avoiding him. I had avoided him for about nine months. And so he just walked up on me this particular Sunday. And when I saw him pulling up and walking up to my house because the, the door was open and I could see him walking up, just every emotion that I had came flashing back. All of the times that I denied him and said I was busy or lied and said that I would meet him somewhere and didn't meet him somewhere. And every emotion that I had came, came out and I was just in tears. I was having an, an emotional breakdown. 
And when he got in, I remember him just hugging me and uh, asking me what was wrong. And I shared with him exactly what had been going on and that I was checking myself into a hospital that day. And so he insisted on taking me to the hospital. He also took my mom because although she could, she had, had these strokes, she could still drive, but it was difficult for her to go around, to get around. And so he drove us to the hospital that day and uh, checked myself in. And they only wanted to keep me for a few days. Um, but I insisted that I was going to stay there until I knew it was safe for me to go home without the fear of going back into um, that state. And so it was during my time in therapy that I started to able to take a good look at myself. And uh, there was a an exercise that we had to do there called life timeline therapy. And uh, that's where you, you draw a line, a horizontal line down the center of a piece of paper, a long piece of paper, and then you divide it up into 10 year intervals. And so the first 10 years, you put all the great things that had happened in your life, you know, uh, the first time that you brought home all A's on your report card, the first time that you made a new friend, the first time you did something really great and terrific that st stood out in your mind. The bottom, all of the negative things, the bottom of this first 10 years of like all the negative things that happened. And for me, it was just a laundry list of things. It was the fire. It was the sexual abuse. It was watching my mom. Uh, being beaten down. It was the abandonment issues that I had from left from, from being abandoned uh, and left home for a weekend. And then the second 10 years of life was kind of similar. And then it got better, you know, high school and I started to, you know, really find myself in high school. And so I had these things um, on this timeline, including the abusive relationships that I was in and all of this. And the bottom of my timeline was crowded. And it gave me a glimpse of my entire life. And I was like, you know what? I've got to change something. And so again, I went, I relied on my faith again. And I remember after I came out of therapy and I, like I told you, I would have these, these conversations with that little voice, uh, which I call God. Uh, and I remember saying, to myself, is this the life that you had? No, I take that back. I asked him first. I said, Lord, is this the life that you had planned for me when you created me? And the answer was no. And I had to ask myself then, well, is this the life that you want for yourself? And the answer was no. And so from that point, um, I started to see things in a whole different light. And I started to do things to make a difference, to make a change in my life. Very cool. So it sounds like it was like a mixture of, um, you know, the therapy and of course your faith um, that that kind of that kind of pulled you through uh, those difficult times. Um, now, you mentioned your faith throughout the book. Um, so one question that I had was, how do you reconcile your faith with uh, homosexuality? You know, I grew up uh, in a Pentecostal church. Uh, my family was a Pentecostal church of God in Christ. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't plug them, but I grew up Pentecostal and uh, my family played a significant role in the church. But I was also raised uh, with, like I said, uh, lived with my mom, but I also lived with one of her sisters for about five years. And uh, even my grandmother was instrumental in uh, informing the Church of God in Christ in Birmingham, she and her sister. And so um, church life was a, a big part of my life, but my family also taught me to think for yourself. And they also taught me that just because you hear something from the pulpit, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's right. And so 
I started realizing at an early age, uh, one of the scriptures, uh, uh, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I started thinking, I'm so thankful to be among the ranks of the whosoever. And so for me, when I would hear in the church, um, hear them uh, demean or belittle anybody who was gay, I would tune it out because they weren't talking to me because I'm in the ranks of the whosoever. And so um, I stayed in that church until I became a young adult, until I tell you, when I tested positive for HIV, uh, one of the counselors that I was going to see at uh, Birmingham AIDS Outreach um, suggested that I attend Metropolitan Church, which is uh, friendly towards gay L the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus community. And, um, and so that's what I did. And uh, that's where I started to really accept myself fully uh, and understand that just what I have been thinking and, and believing all the time, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, uh, that was just a firm for me. Okay, all right. Um, so in your book, uh, the news and being an anchor or a host in some form always seem to be uh, it always seemed to come natural to you and always seemed to be a passion of yours. Um, you're now an award-winning news journalist. So uh, what is it about the news that made you gravitate to it all the time? Wow. See, I was that kid that would run home from school every day. I would run home, take off my school clothes. I don't know if you know about school clothes, but I had to take off my school clothes and put on my play clothes. Then I had to do my homework. And then after my homework, well, and then before my homework, I would whoop down something, a sandwich, chocolate milk, you know, that little Nestle quick stuff. I would whoop all that down, do my homework, go outside and play. Well, I didn't care what we were playing, you know, uh, football in the street, hopscotch, because I played it all. Um, 5.30, I had to be at home in front of the TV, not because somebody said be at home at 5.30, but because I wanted to see the evening news. And I know I'm going to date myself because maybe your audience doesn't even know uh, Walter Cronkite, but Walter Cronkite is like the man. Uh, he was the man uh, when it came to news uh, back in the day. Um, and so I would run home to see Walter Cronkite do the CBS Evening News. And I wanted to be Walter Cronkite. And as a matter of fact, I wanted to be the first black anchor on TV in Birmingham, but another guy beat me to the punch and I'm okay with it, but that's, that was always my goal. And so I was 40 years old. I, I went, I started college right out of high school, went to UAB, um, right out of high school and flunked out miserably, miserably. You know, when I should have been at home studying, I was partying in Atlanta, uh, at, Loretta's and Treks and all those clubs, or I was in New Orleans doing my thing instead of studying. So I flunked out miserably. I didn't get the opportunity to go back to school until I was 40 years old. I'm 54 now, okay? Uh, I ended up, everything that I touched in school, uh, it was blessed. Ended up with a terrific internship program uh, at one of the ABC affiliates in Birmingham. They wanted to hire me on the spot. Well, the, the internship director wanted to hire me on the spot, but the the news director and the news manager said, no, you need to go and get some experience. So I knew that would mean going to Timbuktu, Alabama, uh, uh, Joe Blow, Ohio, or, you know, some small town. Um, but I had really given up on my search because a year out of school, I had still not found a job. 
and something told me that little voice that I keep telling you about told me said, and I had I had I had decided this is the last day that I'm going to search for a job. It's just not meant to be. That last day, that little voice told me, "Go back to your computer one more time." And I searched, and I don't even remember where I searched, but I ended up with uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and there was a job there for an arts reporter, and I applied for it got called in for an interview, went and interviewed. While I was doing the interview, they wanted to know, well, what, you know, what are your, your long-term goals? Well, eventually I would like to become an anchor. Oh, you need to meet Teresa. Teresa's our news director. This arts reporter was separate from the news department. You need to meet Teresa. And so I was introduced to Teresa. Um, she showed me around the facility. Um, she took my resume and all that and my demo, um, and we say our goodbyes and I drive back to Birmingham. As soon as I'm walking up the steps to my house and I reach the porch, I get a phone call and it's Teresa and she wants me to come in and interview for another job, for an anchor's position. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't have any anchor's experience, <laughs> okay? but we think that you have the capabilities of doing this job. And I'm like, okay. And so I get back, uh, they wanted me to come back down. I went down the following week. During the interview, I totally sucked. I mean, basic questions like, in Birmingham, what is the public radio station? What are their call letters? I didn't know. All I knew was that public radio was at the end of the dial, and I would go to that end of the dial. Where do you get your news from? Tom Joyner. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, I, 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 I blew it. Went home and thought, well, I know that's it. And so Maybe two weeks later, something told me to call Teresa again and just let her know if anything else comes available to keep me in mind. I called her up. Five minutes later, she was calling me back. We were just thinking about you. There is a position that has become available that we think you'll be perfect for. It was an entry-level reporter's position. I accepted the job. I knew that it was going to be a cut in pay, but I know how the game works. And I knew I had this story to tell. Listen, when I went back to school to become a news journalist at 40 years old, I knew what would be involved. I knew that I wouldn't be going in making money and getting rich. I went back to school to become a news reporter because I knew I had a story to tell and I knew I needed the legitimacy to tell it. So I decided people will listen to a news reporter. Now, when I got there, I got more than what I bargained for because I just wanted to be a news reporter, but I became an award-winning journalist. I won, I've actually won four Edward R. Murrow Awards. Um, three of them are regional and one of them is the national award where they, fl they fly you up to New York, you're at the Waldorf uh, Hotel. The meal is like $700 per person, wear this tuxedo, all of this kind of stuff. And I'm like, and I, and I remember the night when I was receiving my award. And I'm like, wow, this is the same kid that came through all of this traumatic, all of these traumatic experiences this same kid that watched his cousin down a house fire, the same kid that survived this child abuse, uh, sexual child abuse, that's the same kid that watched his mother suffer, this is the same kid that had these abandonment issues, this is the same kid that, has, that had this problem with addiction, this is the same kid that doubted himself. And now this kid is winning this award. And so I don't know where we're going from there, but I yield, I yield to you. 
Yeah, very cool, very cool. It's a it's a great it's a great story all the way through, and um, you know, very inspiring. Um, so I want to I want to talk a, a minute about your um, your role on the Nashville Regional HIV Planning Council. Um, mm -hmm. Because I mean, I just I have a question. Maybe that's not necessarily personal to your story, but um, I guess to the people watching, I just have a, a question for all of us. I mean, I think maybe, maybe I think that this is one of the questions that a lot of us are kind of asking, like, what's what's up? So even after all of the education um, and access to condoms, HIV rates remain very high in the Black community. Um, why is that, and what needs to happen to lower these rates? Oh, wow. You know, I think that uh, there are many factors involved. You know, uh, some have to do with economics, some have to do with uh, people just needing somewhere to stay, some, you know, there are other issues. But I think the main issue is the stigma. The stigma that is still attached to HIV AIDS, especially in the Black community. And that stigma shows up in so many different ways. You know, some people believe that just because they're gay, they're going to get it anyway. You know, some people are still today, like I was 26 years ago when I was diagnosed, I was afraid to even go to the, the Department of Health to be tested because I didn't want anybody to see me there because there was still this um this notion that if you were in in a clinic a department of health you were automatically there because you had hiv or some other sexually transmitted disease and so people still have this concept that hiv is a bad thing and that and that they had to have done something bad uh, to, to to get it and part of my mission and part of the work that we do on the planning council is to eliminate HIV by working with our community partners, uh, making sure that people have access to care, making sure that uh, we can find ways to help end the stigma. Uh, and I think for me, one of the main ways to end this stigma, uh, which is so prevalent in our community, is that people see more people who do have, who, well, we all have a status. We're either HIV positive or HIV negative. And so for people to see people who are actually HIV positive, still not only surviving, but thriving, um, I think that is the one thing that can help to alleviate this stigma. And 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 so that people won't be so afraid to go and get tested okay very cool very cool okay so i learned something there <laughs> because you know i never really thought that you know that the i never really thought of the stigma as one of the one of the biggest factors in that but um but that's why i asked <laughs> so yeah. excuse me and you know and and you know there have been a lot of movies that have come out lately about HIV AIDS, you know, the that Dallas Buyers Club and but the people that you see on the screen never look like us. You know, I'm talking about major Hollywood movies, right. you know, uh, they never look like us. And so if we never see ourselves portrayed on the screen, we don't really believe that it's going to happen to us, you know, because life imitates art and vice versa. And so I'm really proud that uh, my book has gained the attention of uh, Hollywood producer Joel Eisenberg. Uh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Joel uh, has, has done a wonderful review of the book. Um, and he is also actively pursuing uh, this story for screenplay. Uh, I already tried to get them on board with it. Um, he, in his review, said that this book is therapy for anyone who needs it. And so, you know, it it crosses so many boundaries. It's not just a gay story. It's not just 
an addiction story. It's not just um, a, a, a story about abusive relationships. This is a story about the human condition. And that's why I think my story has been so accepted. You know, um, just last week I was at a book event. I was the only black person there. And I sold so many books to older white women, you know. So I'm thankful that this story is so universal. You know, we, we talked about, can we talk a little bit about what, what this book has actually done, how, how it has affected lives? Sure, please, let, let, let us know. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was writing this story, um, I was hesitant because, you know, here I am, um, news journalists, you know, about to come out with a story like this. The things that prompted me to write it was I was doing a story about domestic violence. And as I was interviewing, the lady wanted to know, well, um, I wanted to traits of people who uh, are abused or commit these acts of violence. And she was like, they have usually experienced unaddressed doubt. Trauma. Oh, I was like, I'm, I'm thinking about you because we very seldom hear this story coming from a, a male's perspective, especially a black man. So I write the book. One of my news colleagues, I let her read the book. And she and I would talk at least once a week. We didn't talk for a month. Okay. I was like, she can't handle the truth. When I called her up after that month, the phone rang. She called me right back and she was in tears. And she said, LaWayne, I just want to thank you for telling my cousin's story. She said, he didn't die, didn't die from AIDS, although we know he had it. He didn't die from addiction, although we know he was an addict. He died from domestic violence. But LaWayne, I know if he had only had somebody like you to talk to, he would be alive today. Um, because of this book, the, I came up through the community college system. The Alabama Community College System selected me, because of my story, selected me as its most outstanding alumnus of the institution's 50-year history. With that, with that came a $5,000 scholarship in my name to a deserving Alabama high school student. During this award ceremony, they're reading my story, you know, my story. And after the event, and it's predominantly white school, so many parents, grandparents came up to me, thank you for telling my son's story, my daughter's story. Thank you for giving my family hope. And I'm also happy to say that this book one uh, was selected as one of the top six autobiographies of 2015 by the Colorado Independent Publishers Association, has since been picked up by a traditional publisher. And we're coming out with another edition of the book in a hardcover placing it on all the library shelves, all the bookstores throughout the country. And we're doing a children's book. And I'm really excited about the children's book, which will be fully illustrated and uh, uh, geared towards kids. I'm really excited about that. And uh, just having the opportunity to um, do conferences around the country, to do workshops, to speak to groups and to have my book selected as reading material for support groups for HIV AIDS or addiction and other um, support groups like that. So a lot has happened. Very great, very yeah. cool, very cool. So it's, uh, it's great to know that you're doing more. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to uh, seeing what else comes up. Um, so if people are, are interested, where can they find you online and where can they find your work? Well, I'm on all the major uh, online sites, Facebook, LeWayne, Orlando Childry, uh, Twitter, at LeWayne Childry, oh, no, at L Childry, uh, Instagram, at LeWayne uh, Childry, um, and my web account is LeWayneChildry.com. But if you just Google LeWayne Childry, a whole bunch of stuff will pop up. Okay. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for uh, for the interview. I've really uh, appreciated your story, your honesty. Um, it's been it's been fantastic. So thank you, Jared. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
All right. Now, uh, thank you all for watching. Um, now, just to, before you go, uh, I have an announcement to make that my book is now available for free. So if you would like to get into a great fantasy story um, with a bunch of crazy characters, uh, very diverse, very inclusive, uh, then head over to jaraking.com, subscribe to my mailing list, and you'll get that book downloaded for free. Thanks again for watching. You have a great night.